You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. Now, from our nation's capital, this is Bloomberg Sound On. Doors have opened, new subpoenas have been issued, and the dam has begun to break. This election is now over. Congress has certified the results. I don't want to say the election's over. It was him pouring gasoline on the fire. Bloomberg Sound On. Politics, policy, and perspective. From D.C.'s top names. The White House Medical Unit is contacting every single person who meets the CDC definition. I think it is an opportunity to restress the message, a positive message of, as Jeannie said, look how far we've come. Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. Steve Bannon found guilty of criminal contempt of Congress. Welcome to the fastest hour in politics with a verdict against Donald Trump's former advisor. Just a day after the January 6th committee holds forth in prime time, we've got a lot to talk about, and specifically the legal case against Bannon, what it means for the larger case against members of the Trump White House. We'll be joined by Jeffrey Kramer, former assistant U.S. attorney, now at Guidepost. We'll talk more about what the committee accomplished last night and did not accomplish with Bloomberg Congress reporter Billy House. And we'll hear a special interview with documentarian Alex Holder, who did the last interview Donald Trump sat for in the White House. Analysis today from our signature panel after a wild week in Washington. Bloomberg Politics contributors Rick Davis, Jeannie Shanzano with us for the hour. The verdict was reached after only three hours of deliberation. Steve Bannon found guilty. Two counts of contempt of Congress, criminal contempt. You may not have realized there was such a thing. It's been a long time since this has happened. Each carry as long as a year in prison and a fine of up to $100,000. So we could be talking up to two years here. Sentencing is set for October. It'll happen on the 21st. Bannon stayed quiet in the courtroom today uh, as the verdict was delivered, as he did for most of the trial. But like each other day this week, he was glad to talk to reporters who had gathered outside the courthouse. There were a lot of them, too. Here's Bannon after the verdict. I want to thank, start by thanking the jury. We respect their decision today. I really want to thank those hardworking citizens of Washington, D.C. that uh, had to take an entire week off to go through this. So their thanks. We respect their decision. We may have lost a battle here today, but we're not going to lose this war. And more where that came from. Bannon, of course, is the first from the inner circle, from Donald Trump's inner orbit to face actual consequences for not cooperating with the committee. This is all about the January 6th committee, of course, which leaves us to wonder what it might mean for Peter Navarro, for instance. He's facing similar charges. There are others from the Trump White House uh, facing, should we say, adjacent accusations here, and this could, of course, get a lot bigger. We add the voice of an expert on this, 
As you would expect on Bloomberg Radio, Jeffrey Kramer, former assistant U.S. attorney, now senior managing director at the firm Guidepost. Jeffrey, welcome. Steve Bannon going to prison either way? Uh, well, he's certainly facing uh, prison time, but yeah. uh, it's obviously up to the judge. Is he going to do a year in, in jail? Doubtful. Uh, you know, could he do a month or so? That certainly would be reasonable, but uh, a non-incarceratory sentence you could certainly see as well. Okay, so that's interesting because I understand each count has a minimum 30 days and up to a year. So how, how might a judge approach this? Well, the judge has a lot of discretion uh, uh-huh. in these cases. This is obviously Bannon's first conviction. He's got no priors before. Um, so the judge does have a lot of latitude here. Bannon's attorney, uh, David Schoen, today says it, it is not up to Congress, and they really frame this as the heart of the case. It is not up to Congress to decide whether executive privilege applies to a specific case. Is he right? Um, yes and no. I mean, Congress does have the first uh, look at it when they're looking at executive privilege, and some witnesses we've seen before the January 6th committee yeah. have um, used executive privilege to not testify in all or part. We saw Pat Cipriani use some of that. That's right. He did uh, give some testimony. Other parts of the questioning, he declined to answer for that reason. Um, if it comes to a battle, in other words, someone alleges uh, some sort of privilege, any privilege, um, and uh, Congress disagrees with that, then it goes to the courts. Bannon, of course, will appeal, uh, which he spoke uh, about today with, again, his lawyer, uh, David Schoen. Let's listen again to Steve Bannon. And the closing prosecutor missed one very important phrase, right? I stand with Trump and the Constitution, and I will never back off that, ever. This didn't seem like David. the misdemeanor from hell, Mr. Bannon. What happened? I thought it was pretty good hell. This is round one. That's what happened. Uh, This is a bulletproof appeal. Uh, Have you ever in another case seen a judge six times say in the case that he thinks the standard uh, for willfulness is wrong? Jeffrey, is it a bulletproof appeal? There's no such thing as a bulletproof appeal. Um, the you know the defense was handcuffed a little bit here in the sense that they wanted to put forth certain defenses, uh, and the judge uh, denied those defenses. Mm-hmm. Um, so they really couldn't argue too much. I think they, the only argument they had was that the subpoena itself uh, was improperly signed or some ministerial amount like that. So there are some uh-huh. issues that they could bring. You know certain defenses they wanted to raise to the jury they were not allowed to. So those are viable appeals, but certainly not a not an easy one for Mr. Bannon. His team did not pre- uh, present any defense witnesses. Uh, what do you make of that decision? Why not build a case around executive privilege? You know, there really wasn't too much of a case uh, to, to be brought. I mean, they tried to, like I say, they tried to bring a couple defenses in, but the judge would not allow that. Once the judge denied those motions, this was basically just a, a slow-moving guilty plea. There, there wasn't too much of a defense argument to make. Yeah. We saw, not surprisingly, a fairly quick verdict. I mean, you know, three hours and <laughs> right. their lunch. Um, <laughs> so there really wasn't too much to do here for the defense. So the other the other uh, item that that they present as uh, as part of the defense is the fact that, for instance, Benny Thompson uh, did not testify. Members of the January 6th committee who subpoenaed Steve Bannon did not testify. Listen again to Steve Bannon from today. I only have one disappointment, and that is the gutless members of that show trial committee. The J6 committee didn't have the guts to come down here and testify in open court. Does that matter from a legal standpoint, Jeffrey? Not at all. Um, yeah, I'm sure he would have liked to have cross-examined the congressman. Yeah, sure. uh, but the fact is, 
you know, uh, a citizen, Mr. Bannon, was subpoenaed to come before the panel, just as you or I or anyone else could be subpoenaed to come before Congress or a grand jury or a, a trial to be a juror. And you can't just say no. I mean, there are reasons why, if it's privilege or some other thing that's under that's recognized under the law, but you can't just thumb your nose. And that's what happened here. And that's why I say it really wasn't that difficult a case, but it's not necessary for anyone from the committee to actually testify. Got it. Jeffrey, you're a former federal prosecutor. You spent more than 20 years uh, in corporate investigations, experience in fraud detection. This case, you have a unique view on this case. Uh, what, what could it mean for Bannon in the other investigations that are underway now, like we're seeing in Georgia, the Southern District of New York, that are that are trying to get into the effort to overturn the election and could be sending out and already have, in many cases, subpoenas. Could he be in and out of jail for the next several years? Um, well, not just Mr. Bannon, but anyone that's subpoenaed uh, before a grand jury. Um, yeah. Again, can't just say, no, I'm not going to show up. So, yeah, if, if he continues this or anyone continues this, we see Mr. Navarro's trial coming up in a few months. Um, it was the first shot across the bow. So while they can thumb their nose at the process, there are consequences to be paid. Sure. And, and just stepping back for a second, that's really what this goes to is the process. You know, the criminal justice process stops if people refuse to come into the grand jury or, or serve as a juror, whatever it might be. Um, you can't get to the truth. So this, while it is a misdemeanor, I think these are important cases because it really does go through the process itself. Does this verdict, though, inform other cases from a legal view, or is that not a factor? Um, It doesn't affect the facts of other cases, but it certainly does impact those defendants and those defense lawyers to whether or not they want to take this to trial. And here you saw a jury really make short shrift of Mr. Bannon's case. Now, Mr. Navarro's case is slightly different, but not too much. Um, And there are other cases that could be teed up as well. So, you know, play this out for a second. If there was an acquittal, you know, could do 180, and that would certainly affect the defendants going forward. They might be emboldened. It's the exact opposite here. Now they're yep. like, well, do I really want to get a guilty plea and look at jail time? Wow. Uh, sentencing, I mentioned October 21. Uh, what would the timing of an appeal look like? Um, you know, Mr. Bannon's in no hurry to get this done. Huh. The longer he can stay out, the better for him, as, as with any defendant. So, you know, there'll be uh, post-trial motions. Um, and then there'll you know, be an appeal to the appellate courts and then maybe an appeal past that. So, you know, as I say, it depends if the judge is going to uh, sentence Mr. Bannon to prison at the sentencing and if he's going to stay that decision pending appeal. That's really what it comes down to. Fascinating insights uh, from a voice of experience, as I mentioned. Jeffrey Kramer, former federal prosecutor, managing director of Guidepost Solutions, with us to get things rolling here on the fastest hour in politics, Steve Bannon found guilty. And as we mentioned, it took all of three hours. I want to assemble the panel uh, just quickly here for a quick round with Rick Davis and Jeannie Shanzano. Uh, Rick, you, you, I'm assuming, expected uh, a guilty verdict here. But what happens in sentencing time? Do you actually see Steve Bannon in handcuffs going into jail? You know, if he exhausts all his uh, appeals and he still uh, got a conviction, uh, I can see that they put him behind bars for maybe just a short while because I think that it is part of the precedent. I mean, I I don't think they want people thumbing their nose at this kind of, you know, process, especially the judicial aspect of it. And, uh, and, you know, last thing I think these judges want to do, even Trump appointed judges like this one, they don't want to undermine congressional authority. And if you if you can't have any veracity behind your subpoenas, then, you know, what's the point of an investigation? 
He's going to raise a lot of money on this one, Jeannie, right? Even from jail, this could be a lucrative experience for Steve Bannon. It is. We understand he was smiling as the verdict was read. He came out with all his shirts on and stood outside and and spoke. (laughs) And, you know, I am still stuck on this. Took only three hours, including the lunch. But the reality is the prosecutor used the analogy of a parking ticket, and that's an apt one. You get a ticket, you either pay or appeal. You don't have the option of just saying, oh, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to comply. That's not how our system works. And the judge and, of course, the jury here let Steve Bannon know that, you know, misdemeanor from hell, bulletproof appeals aside, this is the reality (laughs) of our system. And it reinforces the Bannon brand, Rick. Yeah, I mean, you know, rebel brand, um, you know, it reinforces that brand up until the time he actually has to spend the night in prison. Okay, that's a little different. (laughs) Yeah, and and that way the brand actually starts looking like uh, tarnish on it. Uh, Rick and Jeannie, stay with us as we walk through the hour with our panel and looking back on the January 6th committee hearing last evening, as Liz Cheney says, the dam has begun to break. We heard outtakes from former President Trump and we learned about more scary moments that involved the Secret Service and Mike Pence. But did it change anything in the bigger case? The best panel in the business next. We'll check traffic and markets for you on the way too. on Sound On. I'm Joe Matthew and this is Bloomberg. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. The January 6th committee weighs in on the Bannon verdict. A victory for rule of law, reads the statement. Of course, on the heels of the primetime hearing last night, which will not be the last, it turns out, Congresswoman Liz Cheney says the flow of information is too heavy to stop this now. Here she is from last night. Doors have opened, new subpoenas have been issued, and the dam has begun to break. The dam has begun to break. One of the takeaway lines from that hearing last night as we reassembled the panel, uh, Rick Davis, Jeannie Shanzano, Bloomberg Politics contributors, uh, for for what should have been originally planned to be the finale, uh, Jeannie, there was not a lot of new. We, We did get some new stories. The outtakes from former President Trump were actually fascinating to watch as he recorded the videos uh, on the 6th and the 7th of January. There was a heartbreaking account of uh, the the Secret Service agents sending messages home to family thinking they wouldn't get out alive. But was anything added to the legal case? The end of season one, the finale, and season two is coming in September. That's what we keep hearing. So, yeah. So, um, you know, and and I agree. There wasn't a lot new, but what they did was they gave us a lot of details. Like, we all watched as this unfolded. But, of course, we didn't know what was going on behind the scenes. And Mm -hmm. as you mentioned, there was the audio of Mike Pence's security detail calling home, feeling like they were saying their final goodbyes. There was the really chilling video of Chuck Schumer and Mitch McConnell down there trying to get the Congress back so they could finish the people's business. And, you know, for me, I think one of the most chilling aspects was the president's final words saying, you know, after Mm. all of that, the deaths, the destruction, the attack, his focus was Mike Pence let me down. So I think, you know, not a lot new, not sure if they got there legally in terms of the president's culpability, but what a damning sketch it really was. And they, I thought they presented it once again well last night. So eight hearings in the can here, uh, Rick. Forget doing more, and we are apparently going into overtime, uh, but what about the time that's already been spent? This has been a lot of hearings for people to be watching. It's a lot of hours. They, they run, what, two to three hours each? 
was this produced well? Was that was that an effective way to to kind of leave people hanging to Jeannie's point for the the next season? Yeah, I watched most of the hearings uh, when they were you know live broadcast, and and I was fascinated by it. I'm I'm a junkie, a total nerd for this stuff, and yeah. and so it was a mix of uh, surprises, things I didn't know, so I learned things. Uh, the format uh, was fascinating to me as a Republican. All the testimony came from Republicans. This was not a huh. you know situation where you had a bunch of Democrats picking on Republicans, right? Uh, which we've seen a lot in in previous. Uh, investigations and so or vice versa and and so I, I think their their structure and and the approach they took was very solid and I must say you know the only thing missing I think was I, I kind of was expecting last night a smoking gun I stayed in there all the way two hours and that, you know, yeah. 40 minutes well that means a lot of people were yeah and I is think that a problem the one thing I was looking for was that like did Donald Trump talk to somebody in the crowd you know at the time they were going into the, the Capitol and right and I think, you know, it was clear, like what Adam Kinzinger said, he, he didn't he, he didn't fail to act. He chose not to. Mm -hmm. What I was looking for was that third thing, which is he actually participated in it and 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 not by leaving out the things he would normally do. Call the Department of Defense, call the Homeland Security. Right. Um, you know, they left it up to the vice president to do that. Um, uh, he's the one who took charge and, and rightly so. But. But I was looking for, like, culpability. Did he actually participate? If if the Secret Service had let him go to the Hill mm -hmm. and, and actually be a part of that— It'd be a very different th story. I think we'd be talking about a totally different story. Yeah, that's for um, sure. And maybe thank God for the Supreme Court or for the Secret Service because they kept us from actually having a constitutional crisis where the president was trying to overturn an election himself, right? Not just by, you know, hoping the mob did it for him. I mentioned uh, the the outtakes, if I can use that that term, the the raw footage, behind the scenes footage, of the former president not only recording the Rose Garden video message in which he told supporters, you know, to leave the Capitol, but that he loved them and they were special. Remember, there was also an address uh, to the nation on January seventh, the following day, to try to follow uh, follow up on all of this stuff as he spoke from the White House from behind the presidential podium or were brought into the room. And you can hear Ivanka Trump off camera talking with the president as he bumps into this. You can hear him stumbling over some copy, but then he hits a very important line that he refuses to say in the message. Let's listen. The demonstrators who infiltrated the Capitol have defied the seat of dust. It's defiled, right? See, I can't see it very well. Okay, I'll, I'll do this. I'm going to do this. Let's go. But this election is now over. Congress has certified the results. I don't want to say the election's over. I just want to say Congress has certified the results without saying the election's over, okay? Okay, Jeannie, doesn't that kind of say it all? He wouldn't mention that the election was over on the day after the Capitol burned. That's right. And, and as late as last week, we know he is still calling state officials to overturn their certified results for the 2020 election. Yeah. And, you know, it, that's right. Rick is right. The, the president, they may not have been able to show that he commanded these far right wing militia groups. But I have to say, listening to how those tweets that he was sending out, the one at, you know, 224 about Vice President uh, Pence, yeah. about how they incited that 
that mob. I think there is a possibility that we do see the DOJ act, at least as far as obstruction of Congress and obstruction of an official proceeding. I mean, this is 230 years of history. No president or public official has yeah. ever done something like this to stay in power. And, and Donald Trump did it. And so I do think they methodically laid out that if nothing else, this man is not fit well, to serve. As we mentioned, they're not done. Rick and Jeannie will stay with us here. We're going to add Billy House to the mix coming up here as we go into extra innings on the January 6th committee. He's next on the fastest hour in politics. This is Bloomberg. It's unknown when the next hearing will be the January 6th committee, other than sometime in September is what we learned last night. By the way, is after Liz Cheney's primary in Wyoming. And there are a lot of questions about what this does to the timeline. Remember, there's going to be a final report. Well, that's delayed now. They're saying there'll be an interim report. And if this rolls past, as we have been hearing the last 24 hours, this rolls past the midterms, this committee could be shut down if Republicans take control of the House. So where are we going? That's why we wanted to talk to Billy House, Bloomberg Congress reporter who's been all over these hearings and back with us on Sound On. It's great to have you, Billy. What's your thought on this? Is this committee about to crash into the midterm elections? I think it very well do so, or at least its final report will come right before the elections. Uh, but in terms of crashing at the end of the year, yeah. uh, hey, there's no, there's, no, there's no reason to believe Republicans won't keep it alive and then show us some of the stuff we aren't seeing. Well, gosh, tell me more, because I, I thought the whole idea was that, you know, Kevin McCarthy would, would, would turn around, shut down the committee and start investigating the investigators, as we hear. And, that, and that's all I mean. I mean, that the Republicans have several ideas bannering uh, amongst themselves uh, about whether they should take over this committee, look at its documents and present its own version of all these videos and, mm -hmm. and depositions or have another committee. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival investigate these investigators about what they left out or what their motives might have been allegedly so there's still that's still very early uh, in the plotting yeah. of course we obviously have a lot to learn uh, still billy house we thank you as ever bloomberg congressional yeah. reporter with us here on bloomberg sound on uh you know some of the most incredible parts of this uh hearing last evening if you're interested in you know for the sake of history if as rick was saying you know you're interested in this uh, on a personal standpoint it was the behind the scenes stuff the images behind the scenes uh, inside the, the, the room in Congress where the leadership was hiding behind the scenes, as we heard from the president recording these video messages. And you know who spent a lot of time behind the scenes is documentarian Alex Holder. And Bloomberg had an exclusive sit down with him that we want to listen to. Uh, Leanne Garrens and Tom McKenzie spoke with Holder about his experience having conducted the very last television interview that Donald Trump gave in the White House. This was uh, long after the election. And his documentary uh, on the Trump White House, the build up, the storming of the Capitol and so forth, is why the committee subpoenaed uh, over 100 hours of his raw footage. We had an opportunity to get a sense of what it was like to be in the room, what the 
how the president was conducting himself and what Holder actually thought that Donald Trump really believed inside. Let's listen. Trump actually believed, came to believe the lie that he had started back in 2016, which was that you know, if there was a chance he wouldn't win, uh, delegitimizing the vote was a technique that he was playing with. And I think back in 2016, he knew it was you know, a, a lie. He would probably argue that it was more a joke. But the idea of, of making people think that the election and the results didn't, didn't matter, didn't count, was something that he'd been playing with for, for years earlier. When it came to sort of reality that he clearly lost the 2020 election, he then started to really push this, this point. And when I interviewed him uh, a month after the election, so it was the last interview that Trump ever gave in the White House. It was on the sort of 4th or 5th of December in the White House. And he's still a president of the United States. And this is after his attorney general, after you know, everybody really around him, except some of the loonies, um, were, were saying that there's absolutely no evidence to support his positions. And they'd lost all of their court cases, including cases by Republican judges that he had in fact appointed, had all dismissed all of these lawsuits about the, uh, the election. And it was quite clear that, that President Biden, uh, by the time President-elect Biden had won. And so he, and, and he still maintained this position where he was not only just saying how Biden didn't get 80 million votes, he was coming up with remedies essentially to his situation, i.e. what needs to happen to ensure that he in fact wins. And he starts going on about Georgia and how the election officials there were cowards and stupid. These were Republican officials to not open up the, 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 the ballots to, to check signatures. And, and, and he was coming up with all sorts of conspiratorial ideas and, and then starts denigrating the judicial system. And I think, you know, Trump has this ability to passionately, and he does. I mean, he, there was no doubt in my mind that he absolutely believed in what he was saying, which is obviously in no way a defense. And, and, uh, and, and in fact, it's actually terrifying that there's no way of being able to rationalize with him. And Bill Barr said in his testimony that Trump was a man that was detached from reality. This is the president of the United States with all the power and the apparatus that surrounds the president of the United States, which I saw. I mean, the guy with the nuclear football was standing outside the room when I was interviewing the president of the United States, telling me what needs to happen is we need to find, quote, brave judges. I mean, this is America. This is not you know, a sort of a country where it's not governed by like the, the rule of law and democracy, right? I mean, George Washington's painting is looking down at, at, at Trump whilst I'm interviewing him and he's coming out with these anti-democratic ideas. So it's absolutely remarkable. And horrifying uh, but he when you tell 75 million people that that the and, and it's coming from the incumbent president and the guy they voted for that their vote didn't count what what does anyone expect is going to happen next i mean it's going to be a, an absolute fiasco and, and incredibly dangerous fascinating peek behind the curtain there from alex holder the documentarian uh, and i'm awfully curious to see this whole thing when it finally rolls out Gave Donald Trump his last interview in the White House and now speaking today with Bloomberg TV and radio. We'll reassemble the panel next. Their take on what comes next on the fastest hour in politics. We'll have Rick and Jeannie on the way. I'm Joe Matthew. This is Bloomberg. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. 
So much talk about the January 6th committee and so many what ifs. What if Kevin McCarthy had actually played along with this and provided other representatives after Nancy Pelosi, you know, refused to have the Jim Jordans of the world involved? What if they actually had subpoena power? What if Republicans could have brought witnesses? What would that have been like? Donald Trump thinks it might have been smarter, right? We heard from him. In a, in a statement saying as much that Kevin McCarthy should not have made the decision he did to simply turn away from the committee, call it unlawful, unconstitutional. But interesting, in the primetime hearing last evening, Liz Cheney, uh, toward the end in her closing remarks, chased that of, what if theory. Listen. For those of you who seem to think the evidence would be different if Republican leader McCarthy had not withdrawn his nominees from this committee, let me ask you this. Do you really think Bill Barr is such a delicate flower that he would wilt under cross-examination? Pat Cipollone, Eric Hirschman, Jeff Rosen, Richard Donahue, of course they aren't. None of our witnesses are. Let's reassemble the panel. Rick Davis, Jeannie Shanzano, Bloomberg Politics contributors. Uh, is she onto something here, Rick, the idea that this is somehow illegitimate because Kevin McCarthy chose not to take part? Would it have changed the outcome? Uh, I don't think so. I think uh, kind of side with uh, Liz Cheney on this, uh, the, the testimony that we heard uh, from people who are intimately involved with Donald Trump and his administration yeah. and out. Uh, you made the point. They're all I mean, Republicans. They were all pick, employees right? or colleagues, I guess, of the president and not not to mention family members. So who would Republicans have called? Well, you can only think that they would want to put Democrats on the dais and, and ask them questions. But I, I don't know who who would have any insight into what spurred this. I mean, he's, are they going to try and you know pursue the Antifa kind of line that right. you know, maybe they were there? But like there's just no evidence that they could find anybody to talk to. So I, I, I think it would have been um, a, a bit of a trap for uh, McCarthy, because I'm not sure he would have had very many options. And then they'd have to sit there for all of these hearings on television, Jeannie, uh, with the delicate flower known as Bill Barr. <laughs> yeah, that's right. The only time he's been called a delicate flower. You know, one thing I think that Republicans on the committee could have done is they could have made the committee a lot less cohesive, a lot less um, organized in terms of their presentation. And, you know, they could have, you know, broken in, asked questions, distracted, made it less watchable TV, if you will. So I do think there's ways in which they could have got gotten them off track. And so, quite frankly, I think, you know, history, the American public were all served by the fact that that didn't happen. But, you know, anytime you hear Donald Trump say something like, you know, Kevin McCarthy screwed up, he should have done this, you know it's because he thinks it would have been in his interest to have them there and distracting from what is, it has been an utterly, you know, devastating portrayal of him. And so devastating, I s sat there last night also watching him right on Truth Social. And you he was unhinged last night and today on Truth Social in terms of his so, attacks on everyone trying to deflect blame for this thing. You signed up for Truth Social? Is that what that means? Joe Matthew, I can get it without <laughs> signing up. Hey, All listen, right. I do my duty. I'd like, I, to, I'd like yeah. to share with you. You're gathering news. I don't think Rick is going near it, but I, we haven't had that conversation. Does she have her uh, own Netflix account? Let's really get into this. <laughs> I do, Rick Davis. <laughs> How many in the household? You know, we've talked so much about Mike Pence. And, and wasn't it something to hear again from, you know, the Secret Service members who 
were just, they, they clearly thought they were closer to trouble than anyone realized. Not only was the mob five feet away, but they thought they were not going to be able to get out alive, and they were sending messages home to family. But here's Mike Pence speaking in South Carolina like a presidential candidate in, in, in expressing the pride that he has in being Donald Trump's vice president. Listen to this. But I must tell you, South Carolina, I couldn't be more grateful to have had the privilege to be vice president in the most pro-life administration in American history. The Trump-Pence administration every single day stood for the sanctity of human life. I saw it firsthand every day. That was Wednesday night, the Florist Baptist Temple, Florence, South Carolina. I bet you've been there, Rick. What's Mike Pence up to? Is this actually going to be uh, a showdown potentially between Mike Pence and Donald Trump? Or, or is he trying to move on from what happened? Well, I think he's cherry picking out of the Trump administration those things that he wants to um, take credit for. Um, he's a very uh, righteous Republican. Uh, mm-hmm. He brought that sort of Christian conservatism into the White House, and 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 that was his portfolio. And so gave Donald uh, Trump the evangelical vote. And it shouldn't surprise anybody that he wants to keep that, right? He, he they, they were able to stack the courts with conservative judges. He's going to talk about that as he goes along. But, but these were the highlights for him. He will probably not talk about the lowlights. He'll avoid that conversation. He won't take on Trump because the people in that room are probably pro-Trump. But he wants his share of that pro-Trump Trump vote, regardless of how Trump treated him. I must so does say, he have a base? I mean, how, how would you advise the formation of a campaign like that? I, I think he's actually trying to go out there and find that base. And I see hmm. and I think he believes his base is rooted in the evangelical community. Yeah. And so go there first. Right. If I were you know, helping orchestrate his rollout, which is very soft right now. I'd have him going to churches all over America. That's where it's safe for him. And he doesn't have to get very political because right. he can talk about these kinds of issues related to faith. And, and that's where he's comfortable. And it's a good transition away from being Donald Trump's lap boy. I mean, he's getting a little glow now because not being you know, Trump's friend is actually a positive, uh, mm-hmm. even in our party right now. And so the question is, can he actually build a base out of that? And I think there's a lot of people scratching their head wondering if that's possible. He's going to be speaking at the Heritage Foundation on Monday, Jeannie, uh, the day before Donald Trump speaks at this uh, sort of MAGA summit that they've put together, his big return to Washington. Uh, that's strategic, right? This is not by accident. It's not. They're fighting it out today um, in Arizona with these dueling events for their respective uh, candidates that they've endorsed out there. They're coming to D.C. next week. And, you know, I think, you know, when I listen to Pence, I think he reflects what I hear, at least from many Republicans and Mm -hmm. even some independents and moderates, which is that there are a lot of Americans who like many of the policies that Donald Trump pursued. We heard some of that last night from Matthew Pottinger on the national security side. They like the policies. What they don't like is the behavior, the chaos, and all that came with it. And so I think some of what Mike Pence is doing is he's trying to say, we scored some big victories. And for Pence, they did. The Dobbs decision alone was a tremendous victory for the far right. he's saying that I am Trump without the drama? He's saying I am Trump without the drama. I offer you everything you liked and none of the things you didn't. And, you know, (laughs) without the aftertaste, without the, and can he build a base to Rick's point? I don't know, but, but, you know, that is a that could be something to build on. And I think we'll hear that from a lot of potential Republican 24 candidates. I want to ask you both about Lee Zeldin, because I'm kind of shocked how little attention this is getting a member of Congress 
the Republican nominee for governor of New York, attacked on stage uh, at, at knife point and somehow survived this thanks to, I guess, his quick move and the quick thinking of some other people. L- listen to Representative Zeldin after it happened. Simply grabbing his wrist until all of these great men and women who got here very quickly. A lot of people jumped on this guy and pinned him down. Uh, yeah, it's it, it guy looked like Wolverine. He has like you know brass knuckles with knives on them here, uh, taken into custody and released. But which is its own story here. Uh, but you know, Rick, we've been talking about the January sixth uh, riot for the better part of the hour here. Adam Kinzinger has said the violence is not over. How how dangerous is it to run for office in this country right now? Yeah, I think the amount of political violence is understated in the news media. Uh, One of the sessions of the January 6th committee had members of the Georgia Election Commission there talking about uh, how much violence they were put under, not necessarily physical, but, you know, um, uh, emotional and online and, you know, the kind of attacks that they were worried about, the kind of threats that were given, the kind of threats that were given to people like Adam Kinzinger who were Mm -hmm. on the committee. And, and, and I think this is something that we've got to spend some time on as a country to understand that this is unacceptable. And, 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 and I think, you know, anybody who crosses that line like they did today with Lee Zeldin uh, ought to be punished to the full extent of the law and made an example because only yes. through these examples are we going to be able to try and get containment on this. Because right now I would say that uh, every, every politician I talk to is worried about having the Lee Zeldin event at, at their next uh, wow. Uh, How about uh, that campaign event? You know, we talked a lot about increased security for members of Congress following uh, the January 6th attack. Jeannie, is it time to have a, a bigger conversation about that? It is. I think about security, our Supreme Court justices, our members Mm -hmm. of Congress, our candidates. um, And I also think we have to talk about the laws. I live in New York. The bail reform laws, which which Lee Zeldin, I think, to his credit, has talked about in the aftermath of this, they are incredibly problematic. Mm -hmm. And so I think you're hearing Democrats, um, some in the purple states, trying to push for more investment in police and policing at this point because they recognize the fact that these are real issues. I think a combination of that and also in terms of social media regulation, which we're also, we keep hearing about, but we haven't seen movement on. So security, policing, and social media, all of those things have to be addressed because you cannot have the Republican candidate for New York State be attacked like this and candidates across the country vulnerable as they are. Jeannie, thank you. Rick Davis, great to have you back tonight. Our signature panel on Sound On, conversation I look forward to every day, just like you do. Hey, the president's schedule just came out for the weekend. Shocker, nothing scheduled. The fastest hour in politics resumes on Monday. I'll meet you back here live from Washington. I'm Joe Matthew, and this is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun from May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at CarterEconomicForum.com.